Welcome to Spotlight, a PEI Group podcast that delves into the very latest in private markets investing. I'm Adam Lay, Senior Editor in London, and today we're bringing you the fourth instalment in our mini-series, Private Markets and the End of Cheap Money. Central banks in most parts of the world have raised interest rates consistently over the last 12 months. I say most parts of the world because rates are certainly not moving in lockstep in every single global market. So how are firms with a global perspective thinking about both sourcing and deploying funds in this kind of imbalanced environment? To get a global perspective, we thought we'd try something a bit different for this episode by having a discussion between PEI Group editors based in different PEI Group global locations. Private Fund CFO editor Graham Bipart is based in New York, and Alex Lin is our Hong Kong bureau chief and, as you'd expect, based in Hong Kong. Now, I should say, we conducted most of our interviews last year in 2022 when there was almost an interest rate rise every month and when it seemed like certain currencies were moving pretty aggressively against each other one month and then settled back down the next. So please bear this in mind when listening to our interviewee sound clips. In this episode, we're going to talk about how things have been playing out in the UK, in Asia and in particular in markets like Japan and China, how private equity firms are dealing with currency moves, the hedging products that they use, and the rise of use of private credit funds in Asia. But first, welcome, Graham and Alex. Hi, Adam and Graham. Great to be here. Hey, guys. So, Graham, you, you've been speaking to various market participants around the world over the last few months. What's the general takeaway from your conversations with them? For more than a decade, you know, central banks had previously coordinated quite closely to keep interest rates low and to keep markets calm. And now they've prioritized their own home markets and are raising rates at different paces in a way that sort of produced a chaotic global economic outlook, but also a diff completely different market dynamic than we've seen since many of us have been in the business of finance. And the result is that there should be opportunities for investors, but also there are quite significant risks that many investors haven't faced before. I guess one particular area is the UK. So the UK has been going through some pretty tumultuous times, both politically and I guess economically and you know fiscal policy related in the last few months. Is the UK worth spending a little bit of time on to discuss what's been happening there? Yeah, the investors were presented with a particularly interesting proposition at the beginning of this new era of interest rate rises because the sterling had dropped so much against the dollar that it resulted in a lot of sort of salivating over potential deals. I saw a headline in one broadsheet saying that everything in the UK is for sale now. But that was sort of blown up by former Prime Minister Liz Truss's mini budget, which caused a lot of market chaos. I spoke to Mark Wurstorfer, who's the head of UBS's private funds group and who had been talking to a lot of London and European investors at the time, trying to see what their appetite was for deals. And he said that the situation was pretty optimistic at first. I think we were in a situation which I thought was very compelling for once in the beginning of this year where there was actually perception of better value in Europe relative to North America or the US in particular. And we were seeing actually some positive signs. But, you know, he says that that didn't last long. This next one is him speaking with me back in October last year when markets were still sort of roiling over both interest rate changes and global geopolitical uncertainty. I think right now we just have a general pullback of international or of US capital in Europe. 
And he noted that private equity investors aren't currency investors, obviously. So a chaotic global interest rate environment causes many of them to look to their home markets to deploy their money. So PEI, we're a global publication and we cover private markets globally. Interest rates are rising in key markets. So in Western Europe, in the UK, in the US, but that's not the same picture everywhere around the world, right? At a kind of like general level, how are rates moving kind of around the world and how is that playing out for different private equity players? I mean, it's worth noting in Asia that you see interest rate hikes are moving very, very differently, sometimes in the complete opposite direction. If we take Japan, I mean, they're sticking with this ultra low rate policy, right? Even as inflation is finally starting to creep up. South Korea, on the other hand, it's raised them really sharply. And China, as we know, has gradually actually been lowering rates over the past year and continues to do so. So especially in Asia, I think more than any other region, it's not homogenous like in Europe or North America. So you really can't kind of compare apples and oranges sometimes. So how is that actually playing out in Asia then, Alex? I mean, does it mean that global private equity players or even, I guess, the regional ones are kind of looking to take advantage of conditions in Japan as opposed to South Korea, whereas previously, you know, they might have been looking at other indicators or other dynamics to influence kind of where they do their deals? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, I spoke with Gavin Dakuna, who is Asia Managing Director at PMC Treasury. That's a treasury and risk management solution company. And he was pointing out the fact that any market, essentially, which I guess has foreign currency volatility relative to the US dollar, given that so many private equity funds are USD denominated, they're going to be, I guess, for want of a better phrase, licking their lips at the opportunity set, especially if they've got dry powder to deploy. So Japan, for instance, I mean, it's recovered a little bit over the past kind of month or two, but still relative to the US, it's absolutely plummeted, if not crashed. So obviously, a pan-regional firm that has an appetite for Japan, and let's say they've been eyeing an asset, you know, for the better part of a year, they're now going to think, you know, if they have conviction in this asset, that now is the time to be buying it. I guess the question is obviously whether the seller also thinks it's a good time to part with the asset. Fortunately, in Japan, you do have a lot of these kind of corporate carve-outs in which actually, you know, the business sort of wants or needs to get rid of this asset. So I think that could be a little bit more favorable for buyers than in some other markets where you have a similar dynamic with the currency. So what I've heard from various professionals in the market is that a lot of the investment that was flowing into China, which was a lot of the international investment flowing into Asia in the first place, has been diverted to other countries because of the geopolitical uncertainties there. And so actually, there's very little appetite now suddenly for investment into China well, that really began a few months ago. But that's all going into other places such as Southeast Asia. I spoke to Holcomb Green. He's the head of global private equity capital advisory and the head of private capital solutions at Lazard. Here's what he said. Global capital flows kind of continue and they try to find their best home at the moment with China in particular having been such a huge share of global emerging market capital flows. That capital is flowing elsewhere, which is benefiting sellers of investments in the non-Chinese Asia markets in particular and to a certain extent in developed markets because capital is flowing back from China and elsewhere into home geographies. Okay, one really, really basic stupid question that I have is if the cost of borrowing is going up in some areas like the UK and the US, but the cost of borrowing is not going up in other areas like Japan, for example, then if you're a global private equity firm, can you basically go into a market like Japan and do a deal there and borrow the money from a domestic bank at a cheaper rate 
than if you were to do you know a similar type of deal in a market like the UK or the US where the cost of borrowing is higher? Um, it's a good question. And uh, there's kind of a few nuances to this. I mean, firstly, you can't just go into Japan. Of all the markets, perhaps bar China, it's one of the hardest ones just to go into. One thing to note, Late in November, the latest global private equity outlook from Decker, the law firm, came out. And that actually found it's really surprising. 60% of Asian GPs now use private credit funds to finance their buyouts more than they do bank financing, i.e. the majority of the financing for their buyouts comes from private credit funds. Now, if you look at EMEA, that's only 52%. And in North America, it's 42%. So A... Asia has this massive predilection towards private credit funds. But B, this has happened in a very short space of time. So if you look at that data from last year, it's only 35% of Asian firms had that dynamic of using more private credit funds. So Asia has massively pivoted to private credit. So essentially, even if the banks do pull back or if banks are reticent to lend already, that's essentially looking like not much of a problem for Asian GPs because they've got private credit and private credit, as we know, is more flexible. Generally, they've got a bigger risk appetite. So essentially, you're in a pretty good position anyway, where if you've got the banking relationships, you can probably lean on those given that Japanese banks will have to lend in Japan. But also, if for whatever reason, they don't like the deal or they're not willing to, to provide the amount of leverage that you need, then you can probably lean on the private credit relationship that you have as well. So they're in a, a pretty interesting place, I think, relative to the rest of the world. I would expect that trend to expand across the globe, really. I mean, like banks have to borrow in the wholesale market. It means that, you know, their cost of funds are just higher now than they were, which is why, you know, higher rates don't necessarily mean a bigger risk return profile. But credit funds, I mean, you've already seen here that like more and more private equity funds are launching private credit funds. This is all money that's on balance sheet already raised from investors. Higher interest rates don't affect their cost of funding, right? I mean, it's actually just good for them and it's good for their investors. So uh, I would very much expect, and in some parts of markets, you're already seeing it, right? Like private credit funds are replacing some of the bank relationships for sure. There's actually another kind of dynamic in Asia as well, which is quite interesting when it comes to the deal financing thing, which is explains why it's not so much of an issue over here. So in September, I was speaking with XD Yang, who is the um, Asia chairman for the Carlyle Group. When I asked him about the cost of borrowing, what it means for the firm, essentially he was saying that Yes, for very large buyouts, it, it might be slightly more difficult um, in terms of you know the availability of debt. But he's talking you know transactions that are north of about a billion US. But he was also quick to point out that in Asia, essentially, there aren't as many deals of that size. You know, it's not the US, it's not Europe where you have these real mega buyouts very frequently. When you do have them in Asia, it's kind of you know it's headline news, right? So. While it may be harder to kind of finance these large transactions as well in Asia, you know, if you look at markets like China, for instance, I mean, everyone's generally doing sort of minority transactions. Buyouts are much rarer than they are in the US. And obviously, minority transactions, you kind of need less leverage than you would for a big sort of mega buyout. So that also kind of works in Asia's favor in terms of how stymied they are by this lack of availability of debt. The kinds of figures that you quoted, about 60% of private equity deals, I guess this is over the past year, Alex, uh, in Asia being backed by private credit funds. It seems like the comparisons in Europe and North America are a lot lower. But Andy Thompson, editor of Private Debt Investor, in his podcast, which is episode three in this series, 
also found the same. Pretty much the private credit industry was stepping in where the banks were lacking, um, even in Europe and North America. So it may be lower, but it seems like kind of boom time for private credit globally. Yeah. And you, you'd expect that, right? Again, for the reason that they don't have to borrow on the wholesale market. It's This is good for their investors. And I would expect to see, much like the way on big deals, banks tend to work in syndicates, that you'd start to see some of these newer players in the private credit space do similar things, I, I would think. That's speculation, but over time, that's a natural, that would be a natural evolution for large deals. Mm. I mean, as well, you know, any GP that you speak to now, you also have to remember that they're very quick to, to point out that leverage is no longer kind of the key driver of returns either. So whether you get 4.5 or 5 turns of leverage on your deal, it's more now about the value creation, right? Or, or, you know, that, that's what, what everyone's keen to stress. So I guess, you know, as long as you can still get the deal over the line, then perhaps the leverage doesn't quite impact returns from an LP perspective anyway. So where that debt comes from or how much it costs, as long as it's not you know, extravagant, then you know they should still, if they've got a solid value creation unit, be able to create returns if you know, they, they practice what they preach, I suppose. Yes, it's interesting. I mean, a few GPs that I've been speaking to in recent months have been highlighting the fact that they've been building up their kind of operational improvement capabilities, you know, hiring new people, hiring operating partners, because that lever of leverage is less usable, I guess, in the current environment. Yeah, Adam, to your point about value creation and operational capabilities, it actually brings to mind a conversation I had with John Salata, head of BPEA EQT back in October. He was essentially saying that Leverage is no longer the driver of returns in PE. So the availability or I guess a lack thereof of leverage shouldn't impact returns. It's more now about what you do with the asset itself to drive those returns. So I think the value creation question as well also is going to play into fundraising. Um, I mean, given that the environment has become so much more challenging to raise now, right? Essentially, we've just come out of this period where it's been relatively easy to generate returns, right? And I think there could be this whole vintage who have just raised or who are about to close, who will be caught, essentially, for one of a less rude phrase, with their pants down, right? So they could get exposed for actually not having this value creation expertise that some of their peers have. And I think those who can demonstrate this value creation credibility, I suppose, um, may find fundraising easier now that LPs are clearly going to be prioritizing this and and really scrutinizing who can or can't generate returns through these operational improvements. Is it worth spending some time on Forex, on currency risk? Yeah, sure. I mean, for those investors who invest internationally, and some would say that those with large concentrations in various international markets are probably few and far between in terms of like the funds themselves. But for those investors that do invest internationally, you know, FX is not something that, first of all, they've ever really ha- probably had to deal with. A lot of people in finance generally haven't seen a cycle before. You know, there's been a lot of institutional knowledge that has left the building over the course of the last more than 10 years. So like, first of all, the business of private equity, in part, it's the whole point is to not take FX risk. But if you have deployed money internationally, you're suddenly having to think about that and to hedge that risk. Yeah, I mean, that said, the market environment also provides opportunities in FX as well. And I'm sure that some will be taking advantage of that as the playing field becomes clearer. I just want to play a soundbite from a conversation I had with Validus Risk Management. They're a risk management firm, as the name suggests, that helps clients with things like hedging risk. I spoke to Kevin Lester, their chief executive, and Brian Cohen, their head of US client coverage. Brian's is the first voice you'll hear. The relative move in interest rates 
has created or exacerbated an environment where it's actually pretty attractive to go invest in Europe as a U.S. investor and then hedge that exposure back to the U.S. dollar because the differential in interest rates is what drives if there's a benefit or a cost to hedge currency exposure. So mm-hmm. sitting here today, we're in an environment with the euro, with the yen specifically, where you know managers can go put capital work in Europe, hedge it back to the U.S., mm-hmm. pick up two to 300 basis points running of IRR simply from the currency hedge. And in Japan, it's over 400 basis points. So, you know, when investors are weighing opportunities globally, not just understanding companies and macro drivers in a specific economy, but these kind of dynamics really drive investment decisions. At the end of the day, private equity funds, private credit funds really just care about the returns they can deliver to their investors in the currencies that they care about, right? So the move in rates has had knock-on impacts in currencies, the actual level of currencies, but also in the costs or benefits, depending on which side of the table you're sitting on, to invest internationally and how folks are evaluating those opportunities. Yeah. And to the point even where in, in some cases we've seen funds where that's part of the investment thesis. So the carry on the hedging is not just a byproduct of the strategy. It's part of the investment thesis, which is, I thought, really interesting. And I hadn't seen that before, but uh, we started to see that now. Lester actually told me that their interest rate hedging business has tripled over the past year. We were speaking in September last year, so it may have grown even more now. At one of our recent conferences, the CFOs and uh, COOs forum in London, Eric Huckman, who's the CEO of Miltech FX, talked about this a little bit. Um, They're seeing, obviously, a lot more interest in FX than they were previously. My impression is the interest rate environment, the volatility that we're seeing in macro markets, is kind of bringing to light this ugly duckling, which no one really wants to care about. But remember, it's sort of natural for them not to care. Like the idea of private equity is to just take equity risk, not like FX risk. But, you know, FX risk is a sort of incidental second order requirement of investing abroad. When Hauptman was talking, he said that uh, Miltech FX found that 85% of those who were not hedging at the time of the survey are now considering to do so. In the U.S., on the other hand, like there's maybe less FX risk in the system, uh, Holcomb Green from Lazard said. Most dollar funds are not super concentrated in a particular single international market. So currencies as an aggregate risk for most dollar funds are a secondary risk, not a primary risk, uh, because they tend to not be really substantially in the Eurozone or really substantially in the UK or really substantially in a particular Asian or Latin American geography. There are some international funds that are issued in dollars that are then concentrated. And in those currency risks are quite significant. We wrote about hedges quite a lot on PEI in recent months. One of the things that that people were saying, and we spoke earlier about the the Japanese yen and its precipitous fall relative to the US dollar. So we spoke to Jeff Acton, who's a partner at investment banking advisory BDA Partners based in Tokyo. He was essentially saying that um, GPs now have a much higher appetite for FX swaps. So basically on any deal in Japan, because the yen at the time that we spoke at least continued to fall, 
it was so important for deal certainty that you get one of these because obviously you could agree to transact at a certain price and then the value of the end falls even further and it completely throws a spanner in the works. So hedging on deals in markets where there's a lot of currency volatility in terms of FX swaps has definitely risen. You can use FX hedges, right? I mean, so there's the deal contingent hedges, which you usually get from a bank, which is to say like that, like you've agreed in a price and maybe the currency swings in a way that isn't in your favor. In the meantime, the deal contingent hedges will mitigate that risk. Once you've completed the deal, it will have mitigated the risk of any swings. But there's also ways you can, if you, you know, if you've already done a deal, then you can do longer term like FX solutions at the portfolio level, at the cash flow, you know, level so that the, the cash streams that you're getting in are insulated against currency moves, for example. There's a ton of different applications for FX solutions, I should say. It's interesting because we also spoke to Hamza Azim. He's a principal at Hamilton Lane. He's in the Evergreen portfolio management team. And he was saying that actually, if you're going to hedge, you shouldn't do it sort of reactively. It should be something that as a matter of policy, you have within your portfolio. The example that he gave, which is obviously quite timely, is obviously if you're a Japanese investor, if you're thinking about hedging today, it's because of where the currency kind of is. If it was the other way around, you'd probably be happy with the fact that you don't have any hedging in place because you'd actually be making a currency gain as opposed to a currency loss, right? So you can't really kind of play the system, gain the market. It's a defensive tool, right? So it's there in the good times and it's there in the bad times. And it means that you're insulated from the volatility. So while you're not negatively impacted by the volatility, you also don't profit from it, right? So, you know, there's kind of swings and roundabouts and that's why it shouldn't be used as kind of a, a reactive tool, but more as a, a kind of long-term preventative measure on your portfolio. That's right. I mean, like, you know, FX was originally developed as a defensive measure, but a huge part of the market is now speculative, of course, right? But, you know, yes, it, private equity investors are not currency speculators. So you would not expect them to suddenly develop strategies to profit off of swings in currency moves. But if you are an international, especially, you know, say an, a European investor who invests in several different, you know, jurisdictions in Europe or, you know, outside of the EU, uh, outside of the Eurozone, obviously, you need to have something in place that is a set strategy that is circumscribed by your risk appetite, et cetera, that informs what kinds of solutions you use and how you deploy them. At the forum that I was just in in London, the CFOs and COOs forum, there was one, and we were talking about this on my, one of my panels, and one uh, manager had said sort of, you know, none of this is actually new, but after more than a decade of international low rates, it kind of feels that way for a lot of people. But, you know, the problem now is that it's very difficult to insure your house if it's already on fire, right? So you can't just be jumping in to an FX strategy now. It has to sort of already have been in place <laughs> for mm. it to be uh, efficient. That's a great anecdote. Just to wrap this section up, I mean, are we seeing any changes at the kind of fund or the LP level? And by that, I guess I mean, have either of you heard anything about GPs raising funds that have different sleeves with different kind of denominated currencies to kind of hedge that? Or alternatively, are we seeing or hearing about kind of LPs looking to commit to particular, you know, like a, a sterling fund, for example, because it's all of a sudden kind of 20% cheaper or 10% cheaper for them versus, you know, this time last year. So there are options. I mean, in terms of whether this is changing in response to what's going on, I frankly don't know. But you can have hedged currency sleeves, right? So you can have a fund which has, you know, perhaps two currencies or multiple currencies in different sleeves. And then the LP themselves gets to choose. So, you know, if they're bullish on perhaps, you know, the other currency, they can choose to invest 
in that and then convert it back to their own currency on the assumption that they'd make a gain from that and vice versa you know it, it can be a defensive tool it could be an advantageous tool i guess i don't know whether more gps are offering this but you would have to think that sophisticated lps who have these kind of hedging measures in place or are thinking about them would probably be asking the gps for this option if they weren't already yeah i think that up until now certainly but i would suspect going forward as well probably be kind of more on the fringe of a consideration for both gps and lps like again they're like neither of these are currency speculating investors so and this is a very new era than many of them have experienced before I think this is what, you know, like Holcomb Green at uh, Lazard was saying when he said, you know, a lot of this stuff, despite the opportunities that could present themselves with different currency swings, you know, a lot of investors are retreating home, not just because of the geopolitical risks, but because they don't want to play in the currency space. They want to play in the equity space. It seems like it almost doesn't matter what region you're talking about. Investors, managers are looking for the opportunities in markets they already understand. I think it's worth noting as well that if you do take on a hedged currency sleeve, then you're also taking on the associated costs of hedging. So I think it has to be in your nature as an institution to have this sort of defensive mindset in place. You know, I don't think it's for everyone. I don't think it's a black and white, you know, yes, this is the obvious decision to make. I think you have to be, you know, that inclined to want to do so and to be willing to take on that associated cost as, as perhaps part of your, you know, broader investment policy, for example. Longer term, all of these things are going to settle, like when they do settle and the interest rate picture becomes more clear, there are going to be opportunities. But at the beginning of an era like this, a complete change from anything anyone's seen for more than a decade and there's geopolitical risks to boot, you're not going to see people jumping at those opportunities, right? You need the fog to clear before the battlefield is uh, visible, basically. Well, as usual, we're going to keep our eyes peeled and our ears to the ground um, when it comes to how interest rates and other dynamics are playing out across global markets. So Alex Lin, Hong Kong Bureau Chief, Graham Pipart, Editor of Private Fund CFO, thanks for joining us. In the next and final episode of Private Markets and the End of Cheap Money, we'll hear from different private equity market participants on the indicators they're looking out for to help them make sense of the rising interest rate environment and get a clearer grasp of how to navigate this period. As usual, you can subscribe to PEI Group Spotlight Podcast on all your favorite podcasting platforms and at all of PEI Group's publication websites, including privateequityinternational.com and privatefundscfo.com. I'm Adam Lay. Thanks for listening.